Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's SharePoint Roundtable. My name is Jim Adams, and I'm a business program manager for the IT Showcase team, and I'll be your host for today's session. Today here, we're here with some of our intrepid SharePoint experts. Uh, let's take a moment for them to introduce themselves. Sam? Yeah, hi, everyone. My name is Sam Crudson. I'm a program manager here in the internal IT team that, that manages Office 365 and SharePoint. Among my pro current projects are working around you know, the new publishing sites, communication sites, uh, things around Delve, Delve profile, audience targeting, that sort of thing. So uh, super happy to be here. Sarjanya? Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Sarjanya Srivali, and I'm a program manager with the Enterprise Search and Finding Experience here in Microsoft. And I work on the Enterprise Search Experiences on SharePoint and also the Portal Search Experience. And I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. Darren? Hi, I'm Darren Moffitt. I'm a service engineer here at Microsoft. I focus on Office 365 core automation and SharePoint Online and Groups. And I am David Johnson. I am program manager for our Office 365 shared services, our strategy, and our solutions, how we get our employees and our businesses to build the right solutions on top of the product stack. Thank you, everybody. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to tell our audience that at any time you can ask our experts a question by typing it into the Skype window. I'll then anonymously read that question aloud for our experts to answer. If we run out of time before our hour is up, uh, we'll stay behind in the studio, record your answer, uh, record our answers, and publish them uh, on the on-demand webinar. Then we'll uh, go into our, our, uh, our Q&A panel, and we will share our uh, final key takeaways. And um, with that, we'll get started with the first question. So, um, let's see. Sam, I'll start with you because you're at the top of the list here. This is a question that we got from uh, a little while ago uh, before our, our session started. Uh, what have been the challenges and benefits around the release of communication sites? Hmm, communication sites. Okay, yeah, so um, communication sites, for those who don't know, uh, something that we announced publicly last spring, had a really big coming out party at, at Microsoft Ignite. Um, and it's been really a, a fabulously successful program internally. Um, so I'll kind of work backwards. You know, the, the outcome of the communications uh, site release has been uh, people who internally, uh, number one, they found it much easier to deploy. You know, there are a couple of our internal uh, business partners who have indicated that, you know, that they went from being someone who, you know, disliked SharePoint to being someone who loved SharePoint. Um, and, and why is that? Uh, number one, they were able to deploy their, their internal site much faster. Uh, you know, they described where the previous version of their site took, you know, a couple of months to build and it took, uh, you know, them hiring an external consultant to come in and build it and make it look nice. Uh, she herself did it, you know, without having to hire any external consultants. So, you know, number one, there was the cost savings and she was do able to do it fast and, and easy and it was accessible and it was responsive and worked on any device. Uh, you know, the, the list of, of wins about communication sites has, has been really quite lengthy. Um, so really, I guess that's my answer is, is that it's, uh, you know, easier, faster, and it turns your, your SharePoint haters into SharePoint lovers. And I'd add to that to say part of it is also the content. It puts the emphasis of the experience squarely on the content itself and making sure that it's about authoring quality material. It's about making sure that the uh, 
the presentation of that material is solid, that the kind of how you wrap that story, what picture you're choosing, that's where you focus is how do I tell my story, what story, what, and what, how to represent it with a picture or something that's going to summarize it effectively. And I'm not as worried anymore about building that site. We used to, to Sam's point, have a lot of, I guess, portal build time. And there's a lot of design uh, work around, okay, we're going to build these big, complex sites. And it, it almost took away from the, the core message of what is the information architecture, what is the content, what is the structure, to make it really solid on where people want it to be, as opposed to the, you know, I, I think that's what's really changed fundamentally on going to communication sites. And can you have a, a, a brand for a division or something without uh, going into a lot of customizations? Oh yeah, I think that's a, part of the, so the customization store for communication sites continues to evolve. And one of the nice things that I think, Sam, you can talk to this a lot more too, mm -hmm. is the, the new SharePoint Hub model to say, look, I want to put my, for example, IT branded sites or legal branded sites all under one kind of container so I can have a, a hierarchy and, and, and more importantly, a, a nav that's cross site collection as well, along with the site specific. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. So, you know, there are really three areas that were uh, announced publicly at Ignite and, and really touted. Uh, you know, number one, hub site model. So the idea is that you can have effectively what acts as a parent site, uh, and that's called the hub site. And then you can have associated sites. That's the terminology, but every, everyone in the world, I think, is going to call them uh, children or, or spoke sites. And basically, all, all these sites associate up to this top-level parent site, and they inherit branding, they inherit theming, they inherit search. Uh, you know, they have this common, uh, essentially, what's called a hub site ID. So search from across all these sites is aggregated in one place. Uh, and then the, the, the other thing, and wow, I'm, I'm talking about all my favorite features here in just the first couple minutes of the session, uh, is the new site design templates, um, something we called internally recipes until just recently. The idea being that you'll be able to lay down, uh, you, know, uh, um, you, know, you know, what web parts, what libraries you want to build. You can integrate it with flow and take actions based on site creation, based on, on, on you, know, um, you know, something built in flow. So, uh, there's so much exciting uh, work being done in the modern space and in communication sites in particular. Um, uh, I would really encourage everyone to, to give it a whirl. Well, one other piece about that is just the, when you think about the sites inheriting the nav from this almost parent hub, it's not like where you historically would have had one giant site collection and say everything's under this structure and it's really formal and you have to manage it and all the complexities of having everything in one thing. Now you let the individual teams build their own sites, their own team sites, their own communication sites. These are top-level site collections that are getting created, all with the ability to interconnect them. Okay. So, uh, David, since you have the baton, since all of your SharePoint online data for Microsoft is stored in one data center in the U.S., mm -hmm. I guess they're, they're assuming that it is, uh, do your regional users have performance issues? If they don't, how do you manage that? It's a fair question. And so there's a couple pieces there. Is one, not all of our data is going to be in the US. We are in process, and Darren can talk about this more too, of moving to a, a cross-geographic model where we will have parts of our tenancy will be in various regions. So that's kind of part one. So sites will be closer from that perspective. Part two, we use the content delivery network uh, on in, within the product itself, the CDN, to automatically move certain types of files closer to the individual. So things like core structure, CSS, JavaScript, images on the page, 
those things aren't necessarily going to be coming from the U.S. data center. They're going to be coming from a closer region to where the individual sits because they're all on a CDN replicated worldwide, where, so therefore it's going to come from a close space. And those are, I think, two of the kind of key points to this. And I think a third point is that, you know, what we found is it's often, there's so many factors performance, especially with geo. Yes, these are, are, are big contributors. Like we saw massive increases in performance of some of our portals sitting in the U.S. Went by people outside of the U.S., partially because of that CDN. It really, I think, dramatically helped. But part of it is also just understanding the last mile and your network connection of the internet where you are, too, and is that a strong foundation for part of this? So. And, and actually, I'll jump in, and then we'll give it to, to Darren. Uh, you know, the, the thing I would add on, on onto your CDN piece is that you can control, uh, you know, you can set policy for your CDN based on site classification. Yeah. You know, so for example, we have three primary site classifications internally. Uh, used to be called LBI, it's now called uh, General. And that's just basically your, your basic everyday business content, nothing super secret about it. Uh, our next uh, level up is confidential. Uh, and as you might imagine, that's stuff that we you know, don't want to, we're especially careful about not leaking publicly. And then highly confidential, which you kind of think of as top secret. And I just wanted to add on that you know, we you know, have configured our CDN such that LBI, uh, sorry, the general sites, that's the new name, uh, you know, essentially will replicate everything. You know, all the, all the various file types and what have you. Uh, out to a, a an unauthenticated CDN, and that's going to be the fastest uh, way of doing things. Now we have the the second level up. The confidential sites will uh, enforce authentication, so all the things that are replicated out to the CDN uh, ensure that you know as you uh, it'll check your credentials is, is is the gist. So that way, someone can't you know send out a, a link to the to the content. And then finally, uh, for our top secret sites, our, our highly confidential sites. Uh, we disable the, the CDN for those. So my point is it's inside your control whether to, number one, enable the CDN, and number two, you can apply policy to what types of content and what kinds of sites get replicated to that CDN. Mm -hmm. and, and to be clear, by the way, we're also adding to that, we're talking about structure of the site and, and graphics, not necessarily documents on it. So the core secure content that might be on the site is not impacted by the CDN. So, Darren, so, so, so Darren the, the follow-on to that is, uh, our, do we have now the much requested multi-geo capability uh, in our enterprise? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, we're in the process of rolling it out. Uh, that means ensuring that the 280,000 user accounts we have in Microsoft are properly coded with, with the correct preferred data location. That's something we're still in the process of doing simply because there are more than just SharePoint in these moving parts. We have to be very mindful of Skype for Business, Teams, Exchange, SharePoint Online, setting the PDL can potentially cause you know, your mailbox to be moved to a region you don't want it to be. Uh, it could cause issues with dialing plans. So those are some of the challenges we are, we are supporting and we're facing right now. Um, you know, in the SharePoint space, the other thing we're working with is our network teams to understand um, you know, where the data centers are going to be located in our geos. Uh, in this case, it's Dublin and Singapore. Uh, and more specifically, uh, what can we do to uh, you know, reduce the amount of hops that users from, say, China or Japan, India, uh, you know, the UK, for instance, those types of hops so that they can get to the, the geo data centers more efficiently. And so there is a lot of fine tuning that has to go on. Um, and we do see, as David mentioned, we are seeing some performance gains, although our intent 
with multi-geo and supporting it was more data sovereignty. Yeah, um, and that's what I was going to say is if our product group friends were in the room, they would explicitly say that going multi-geo, you don't do that to get performance, although that might be a side benefit yeah. that the real reason yeah. to do it is around policy. Okay. Content you know, must remain yeah. you know, keeping content where it belongs. I'm yeah. sorry, I just wanted to... No, that. and that's a very good point. Um, you know, the expectation with multi-geo should not be performance. Um, that's not to say that you won't get performance. Uh, the out-of-a-box deployment of multi-geo, though, does require some fine-tuning. I mean, I can't speak for every business out there, uh, but I know that depending on where your offices are located, who your internet service providers are for those commercial locations, there may have to be some, some tweaking uh, between the different um, data providers and bandwidth providers. Uh, I know that our, our NIS team basically spends their entire existence fine-tuning, constantly optimizing our network. So there is performance gains to potentially be had if you're a customer, for instance, that's like, you know, hitting a data center in the United States is always going to be a challenge for me, just based on the nature of my setup. If only there was a place in Singapore I could go, then you may see some performance benefits um, beyond what type of engineering you could even do to get to the U.S. data centers. But as Sam pointed out, uh, the, the primary reason we went multi-geo was data sovereignty and ensuring that we could have content um, where, I guess, legally and logistically, uh, ha have it belong where it should, which is in the geos that those those particular offices reside in or around. So does this entail most general content or just specific pools of data that were? Uh, uh, you know, the, the grand scheme is general content. Okay. So, when, so, so, so the typical road warrior uh, scenario where a U.S. Uh, traveler can get their content from the most local data center as opposed to going all the way back to the state. And, and that's and that that's covered by the CDN strategy that, mm -hmm. that Sam and David talked about. Um, you know, when we look at preferred data locations in multi-geo, the scenario would be if that particular uh, employee was, say, going from the United States and maybe spending a month in mm -hmm. the United, uh, sorry, spending a month in, say, another country. Mm -hmm. Like China or yeah. Singapore or if, if they're working on something that was potentially legally binding or government contracts, then you know we may have a case to say, all right, set their preferred data location to Europe or Asia, and then we will go through the process of moving their mailbox there, moving their OneDrive there, and then their data is in there. Um, should they come back to the United States, then we have the ability to reset their PDL and, and move it back. Although given you know all the moving parts there, it, it is kind of one of those things that with multi-geo, our, our strategy is, moving preferred data locations kind of for longer-term needs. Shorter-term needs, I feel, are being served by the by the content delivery networks, right. the CDNs. And the sync client. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and the sync clients, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah the, we would generally have in region the employee's mailbox. If you're a, a European employee, your mailbox will be in the region. Your OneDrive will be in the region. And any new group, SharePoint, connecting SharePoint sites you create will be in that region, too. Yeah. And, and that, that was actually the thing I was going to jump in and also say is when they're creating a regular SharePoint site, the person doing the, the the site creation, it'll be created in their preferred data location. So, like if you're a, an international team and you want your your site to be created in Europe, you should have one of the guys in Europe execute that site creation, or reach out to your IT team where we can do it for you, um, yeah. or your IT team. Okay. And so, yep. Go ahead. All right. Uh, what is the most exciting, what are the most exciting things coming to the search experience? I'll give it to you, Sajanya. Okay. Yeah, I think since we are on the multi-geo topic, I think we'll start with that, right? Fantastic. So when, 
your OneDrive for Business or your SharePoint sites are created in these various regions, it's very exciting to know that you will have one search experience, that you don't have to go to multiple locations, multiple regions for getting your content, right? That's, I think, a big plus with the whole multi-geo experience. And gladly, for us within Microsoft, it's already there. We already are in this multi-geo experience, which means when Darren and David and Sam and everybody work on the experiences of moving all of the content to these various regions, we still have one enterprise search experience, right? I think that's very exciting. We don't have to really worry about, oh, I'm not finding my content in Asia or Emmy or any other region. I think that's exciting. The biggest excitement, I think, is about the personalization in search, right? It's always been a request for users, it's like, can search know me? Can search know I'm this employee, I work in this space, and this is my interest and all that. I think it's coming together in a great way in all of the search experiences. So when you go into the new enterprise search experience or when you go into a new portal search experience, it, it now knows you as a user, and it knows what your connections are. Um, everything powered by the Microsoft Graph that you might have heard at Ignite, right? And so it knows, already knows that, okay, this is my team that I'm working with with them, right, and it surfaces the content that will be interest of, uh, you know, uh, within my network first, and then go deep dive into the other content. I think that's the most exciting thing that's coming up in search to look for, yeah. Yeah, and I just riff on that, the, you know, the, the one of the things I think is super cool, having worked on search for, for a number of years, is you start typing into the new search box, and oh, yeah. it's just giving you that predictive behavior, and, and, and by predictive, I don't mean what we see on public search engines, where it's, you know, kind of a smart autocomplete, but rather the, the suggestions that come up right in the search box are graph driven. Yeah. You know, so it'll show you content uh, you know, based on the people around you, the people you interact with, content you've worked on recently. All that is taken into account and, and right from within the search box, even without having executed your query, you start to see that stuff show up. And this yeah. is the value also of the, the collaboration type search that this is because typically this is the unmanaged content, the unstructured stuff that people are putting in their team sites, their OneDrive, their groups, their Microsoft Teams. It's that content that you you know you don't think put a lot of thought into because it's really for your your peers, and so this new experience bring, brings that up, you know, and I think that's the kind of changing the dynamic of saying you know what this content was before hard to find because it necessarily wasn't managed, it wasn't the authoritative content right. is now much more discoverable because of what you're talking about. Right. Right. And and, I'll, uh, and I know it wasn't aimed at me. I'll, I'll just jump in on this question a little bit too. One of the other things that that we announced at Ignite is the the AI and the the, the image recognition. You know, so, you know, the, the search engine in Office 365 is going to be able to, you know, read the EXIF data on your photos and, and, you know, like, for example, if you search on the word Iceland was the thing that they demoed at night, it will bring up pictures, you know, that were taken in Iceland or it'll be able to read the content of the file. So, like, if you're looking for a receipt and you type in, type in the word steak and steak was on the receipt, then you'll find that receipt via the content uh, found within the image. So, yeah. um, you know, that... That's something that's just rolling out uh, for us here and coming uh, to the world soon. Uh, and that's something that I, I think is really exciting. Yeah, I think just to add to that, right, I think the refresh of the search experience itself is also a very exciting thing. There's a new UI, there's new metadata that you see. I mean, we've always had, like, can I see the modified date on this content? It's a very simple thing in content discovery. Can I see who, who modified it last? So it's all coming together in, in terms of a UX refresh also, which is, which is cool, yeah. Depending on whether you're in a 100% cloud environment or a hybrid environment, is the search experience the same or different? 
So we are currently in a hybrid environment, and what it gives us is um, actually to answer your question, yes, they will be the same. As okay. long as you have a cloud component, the experience mm -hmm. will be mm -hmm. the same. The additional benefit of hybrid search is, of course, you know, the story of all connectors. They are now able to connect to external data sources that are not inherently part of your SharePoint online experience. And hybrid gives us a great way of blending that content into the SharePoint experience. Okay. Plus, of course, it gave us the ability to move over time to cloud. Like we, by having hybrid in place, it meant that the on-prem uh, sites weren't isolated anymore. They're discoverable. They're part of the enterprise set still. And I think that, for us, was a big deal when we moved to bring in hybrid. OK. Um, so let's see. We have a few people that went to Ignite uh, 2017. And this is uh, from Ignite. Question uh, at Ignite, it sounded like the Microsoft, that Microsoft was moving away from subsites. If that's true, how are you managing that internally? Hmm, Sam, I guess that, that might be mine first. Um, so yeah, you know, there, there's definitely a de-emphasis on, on the old way. So you know, it used to be you know, you'd go out, you'd build this monolithic site collection. You know, you build, uh, you, know, uh, you know, your content narrow and deep is how I like to think about it with a lot of subsites and maybe subsites under those subsites and, and you know, really, uh, you know, that was kind of our old way of doing things. Now, what, what if you went to Ignite or if you've watched some of the sessions, ignite.microsoft.com, by the way, uh, then, you know, you can see that the, the product group is moving in a slightly different direction, and I refer, referenced this earlier. So, you know, the new model is to build a lot of top-level site collections and then associate them together via the new hub site feature. Uh, you know, the new hub site feature gives you the, the ability to aggregate search across all those, all that content, the ability to have a common nav across all that content. So you, know, you can see that this might be the way, uh, for example, you uh, build a divisional uh, uh, site collection in this case. So you, know, you might have your you know, HR top level communication site, but then associated to that top-level site, you might have a, a mixture of modern group-based team sites as well as a, a additional communication sites. And those can be associated up to the parent and inherit that search, theming, branding, all that stuff that we used to have to do within a single site collection boundary. The other thing I'd, I'd add to this is that when we think about groups versus in the, the basically a flat structure, it's also about the security boundary. That part of the advantage of having a much more breadth-focused structure is that you're saying, I'm going to, to have my boundary being who I'm working with, who's my team, and who am I typically co-authoring with on a general basis and sharing with on a general basis. That's the people that should have access to the site, as opposed to, I think, part of a challenge we've seen internally anyways is a depth site with a lot of sub-sites the risk of people unintentionally not understanding breakaway permissions and, and unique inheritance and understanding all that. Yeah. And, and I think that that's the nice thing about the flat structure is the permissions of a group is the permissions of a site to start. That's a boundary. If I want to go beyond that, I can still, of course, share a file, share a link. And that group boundary also persists to the other workloads. That's the group boundary for Microsoft Teams. That's the group boundary for Yammer connected groups. That's a group boundary for the DL, effectively, for the uh, calendar, for planner. All these, all these pieces fit together for that group. So part of the advantage of moving from the subsite model into the breadth model with more groups is just you get the advantage of cross 365 suite. 
And I would add on to that. One of the things that, as an IT guy, one of the things I'm really looking forward to with the new hub model is um, is best told as a, as a quick story. So uh, unlike any other customer in the world, I'm sure, uh, you know, here at Microsoft, we go through reorgs constantly. You know, so a team will get renamed, uh, 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 you know, half the team will go to this new organization over here, half will go to this organization over here. And, you know, what that leads us to is, is this mismatch of our internal site collections with, you know, the organizational structure. And so what that then becomes is this migration project and we have to pull the site apart and establish new names and, and you know, it really is, is kind of a mess. Uh, one of the things that I foresee, you know, it's too early to say for sure that, that it's going to help, but what I'm thinking about is with this, you know, hub and child site type model is that, you know, if you're very careful when you're building out your sites, it's super easy to deassociate your, your child site from one hub and associate it with a different hub or to uh, deassociate your site from a hub and establish it as its own hub. And so, you know, if you're very careful about, you know, organizations and then underneath it teams, or, you know, like for us here at Microsoft, it might be products and then teams working on aspects of those products. Uh, it gives you a way to, uh, you know, reassociate and refactor those sites without having to rebuild and re-migrate and, and all that kind of jazz. So uh, I think that's going to be, uh, for us, one of our bigger benefits of the, of the hub site model, uh, in addition to all the other things we've said. Yeah, can I add to that? Actually, one of the things that we've always had challenges with nested sites, right? That there's no easy way for us to move a site from one site collection to another site collection, for example. And I think the hub site concept is great in that way. It's a flat structure that you have now seamless way of moving sites across different divisions or different segments, like Sam spoke about it. I think that's um, the great thing about the hubs. Plus, for you, divisional search, because yeah. that's been a big deal for a lot of our internal customers of saying, look, I want a legal search. Yeah. Well, now by associating them with one hub, I can get a legal search. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So we're talking about hubs, sites, teams. Here's a question that I've overheard. Um, in the past, we had team sites, we had portal sites, and that was relatively easy to keep them straight. Now we have team sites again, or teams. What's the difference between teams, today's team, and the old team site? Okay, well, I, I can start with that one. So a Microsoft Teams, think of it as, it, it's the, the, the chat and all the voice meetings components on top of this that I was mentioning groups earlier. It's that groups thing, that that construct that, but basically it's a SharePoint site. You've got a SharePoint site where I've got that is a team site. In fact, when you go create a a, a new team site in SharePoint now, you're creating a, that group site, connected site, which then can have teams on top of it. So every time you think about teams, you actually have a SharePoint site, and that is that share, same SharePoint team site. So I I don't think I think and I think that's the confusion that people will need to understand that it's not an or, it's an and. You, you don't choose Teams or SharePoint. By choosing Teams, I have SharePoint. Now, I've got, that's one option. The other option, of course, is if I don't want that team experience, I want a portal experience, in which case then you're going to the communication site. And so that when we think about creation of sites internally now, 95% of our sites are gonna be group connected team sites, which group connected SharePoint sites. The other, you know, roughly three or four percent are going to be probably the communication sites, the bigger portals, and then we still have some subset of, of sites that are still being provisioned as classic, you know, non-modern sites. We like to think about them. Okay, thank you. So, David, um, how does SharePoint Online Security stack up to uh, SharePoint On-Prem? Interesting question. So, 
you know, we've done a lot, uh, obviously, you know, like any customer, you, we internally have a lot of highly sensitive data that we have to worry about, understandably. And so a big part of this is trying to say, how do we protect our data? And same time, how do we make it so that our employees can do what they need to do? Um, and so when we think about those kind of core things of encryption at rest, encryption in transit, uh, all, all kind of a core components, the, the potential IRM. IRM, customer lockbox, the, the auditing, like there are things that only exist from a security perspective on 365 that would either be really hard to do on-prem or expensive to do on-prem. It's doable. Like I can build a, a vault, in a, I can put a SharePoint farm on-prem in a vault and make it really secure. But I got two problems with that. One, it's expensive to have set up. And two, it's harder for my employees to actually use the thing. Um, which means they're less likely to do so and potentially going to violate by pulling content out and working with it outside. By working on 365, I've got all the controls baked in, including the auditing for us is a huge one, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we, we use auditing a lot to help us kind of investigations, what's going on, um, not to mention all the core trust foundation of the suite that makes it so that we're able to kind of run in a much better model. And I think we're at the point where we're saying, look, we feel more comfortable with our highly secure sites being on Office 365 than we do on-prem because our employees are going, first of all, the, the, the core infrastructure is there to protect them, plus the fact that they're there uh, means that they're not, it's, it's, the employee can actually get make use of a thing and yet we still protect it from device scenarios. For example, we can still do the conditional access checks to go, do we trust your device against our site? If we don't, we're not going to let you into the site. So, you know, we still have the, I think, all those protection models, plus we can block download of, of content and say, you know what, this content is going to stay on the site. It's not allowed to come down to the machine. Uh, the vocal device, I can block OneDrive sync. I can block SharePoint sync. I, I can block uh, online uh, uh, client edits. Um, so there's all these things I can do to make sure that my sites are far more secure in cloud than ever was possible on-prem. Excellent. Okay, we have another question from online. Um, I guess this one's for you. Uh, are you going to be able to search across multiple hub sites? Yeah, I think the short answer is probably yes. And search is, uh, you know, the way search works is it's it scopes. And you can scope it to your hub site or externally scope it to beyond the hub sites, right? Um, and it depends on how you want to configure. One thing I want to be very clear here is that the hub site search is still evolving. It's not fully baked yet. So there might be, you know, some scenarios today that's possible in classic sites that are still not supported in the hub sites, but it's coming up there. So we, we will have that at okay. some point. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll add on there that, you know, the implementation of the hub site is through uh, what's going to be essentially a managed property. So, for example, if you go to night.microsoft.com, I'll plug that again, and look up a session by Katrina Hammerwald and, and uh, Naomi Moneypenny. Uh, if you look really closely when they're demonstrating uh, the model, you'll see that it has a, what's, a, I don't remember the exact uh, syntax word, but it has a hub site ID. Yeah, so conceptually, uh, you know, the idea is because this is just an, another crawled property, uh, you know, if you want to use that crawled property, uh, if you want to discover and reuse that in your highlighted content web part, in your content by search web part, or wherever, you know, your favorite uh, way of doing search is, uh, you know, in your classic search center, uh, at least conceptually, you should be able to build whatever experiences you are to aggregate multiple hubs. Uh, now, this isn't the question that was asked, but I'll, I'll make sure it's clear just in case. Uh, today, uh, the hub model is one level, you know, so one, par one parent to multiple children, to multiple associated sites is their terminology. Um, so you can't have then multiple hubs associated in a second or a third or, or a fourth level. Uh, that's something that they're considering, but right now they're focusing on just the one level of 
of hub sites uh, so they can get that out the door. Okay. Keep the questions coming in. Uh, this one looks like it's for Darren. Is the content on your portal limited to what your team creates, or can you include additional SPO content for your users, uh, SharePoint Online content for your users? When you think about the current state of SPO, we've, we've got more ways to include content for our users than I think we've ever had before. Um, you know, you've got things like the corporate app catalog, you've got, well, generally the SharePoint App Store and overall includes a ton of content. Um, we have hub sites, which we've just discussed, um, and of course, web parts. I know internally we've got web parts that are out there as well as being developed uh, that allow us to say, here's some content you can either add to your site or already include it. Um, so I think when you, when you look at the big picture of things and where SharePoint was, where it used to be what we went from, fully trusted code solutions, mm -hmm. which were very tough to manage, uh, often broke, had to be something we were incredibly mindful of, uh, to the sandbox solutions, which typically had to be deployed by the users themselves. And, and again, there was a lot of supportability there um, that we have to take into account to now where we've got hub sites, which plain and simple makes it easy to get content out to our users as effortlessly as possible. You know, we've got the apps, which allows a very structured approval process, mm -hmm. which allows us to get um, you know, a great assortment of apps that do a lot more than you know, our previous solutions ever did. Uh, and then of course the web parts, which allow us to get very structured content as Sam said, content by queries. Yeah. Um, and we've got some web parts that are coming. Maybe there's a few you want to add there uh, that allow us to, to just let our users do more. Yeah. And especially in modern, we've got the highlighted content part, for example, that brings content across sites. The, in the classic, you've got content by search parts. You've got uh, the ability to add power apps, by the way, to yeah. your sites to say, you know what, I want to embed a power app, which is going to surface content from some other REST API or some other service running somewhere else and, and bring it all in. So or is I that can, the definition of power app? Hmm? A power, what was the definition oh, of power so app? A power app is effectively, actually, I don't know the best way to describe <laughs> it. A power app is, a, is a, a, almost like a lightweight player for this, develop, this developer, uh, 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 I guess, a business-led application, yeah. which is simply a, a UI. It's almost like saying, in Excel, I can build these complex forms and I can do a bunch of stuff. It's basically saying, I'm, I as the person building the Power App want to say, here's where I want to point the data to. I've got this other, these other services and I want to connect to them to get the data. Here's the form that I want to surface it in or here's one I want to collect. So here's, I can just quickly sort of put my UI together. And as, as a business, as a power user effectively, I can build that Power App, connect it to these other things, drop it on the site. Now I've got this interconnected experience. Or I can still build a, 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 a SharePoint web part, either the provider hosted part, which we've been doing, or now the SharePoint framework parts, which are all client-side solutions effectively. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just riff on that. The, uh, the SharePoint framework parts, I, I think anyone who's seen one of our previous sessions is probably sick of me talking about it. Uh, but you know, it's, it, it, it's a super cool way of doing web parts going forward because number one, no longer do you need to, to you know, have a certain level of SharePoint knowledge uh, to, to build these web parts, you know, it's using really off-the-shelf type of uh, 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 skill sets, you know, JavaScript, TypeScript, Angular, Angular 2, and so on and so forth. You can go out and build your, your client-side web parts in these well-known uh, uh, infrastructures. You can deploy them easily to your environment and, and make them available on your sites. You can scope them to a security group so only limited users can see them or you can make it so all users can see them. 
uh, you know, so the development model for most scenarios in SharePoint has gotten so much easier. Uh, and so you know, that's something that we're working heavily in, in, in my part of the team right now to, to build out the, the internal gallery for our uh, internal users. Now that said, uh, you know, just two days ago, I think uh, we announced 20 new additional web parts are now available in the gallery here three days ago, right? Recently. Um, and so, you know, there, there's been new releases uh, on Twitter and a new Yammer web part and, and an RSS feed web part and all these things that you need to, to have to build a, a robust, powerful uh, SharePoint site out on SPO. Um, and so between that and, and the new web part building model, um, you know, the sky's the limit. And these are all shareable across the enterprise. These are all shareable. So actually, uh, I'll answer your question directly, but it made me realize something else too. Um, is yes, so you can put the web parts up into the gallery mm -hmm. and you can make it available to all internal users uh, or you can limit it. So for example, if there's a web part built by our finance team and they wanna have it only available to people in the finance org, we could pinch it down accordingly using a security group. Mm -hmm. uh, now the thing where I thought you were going, which I think is a good thing to bring up, is there is this also this open source community that's really developed out on the internet um, mm -hmm. uh, where you can go out and get and download starters or uh, samples or uh, in some cases even fully baked web parts that you just have to pull down, maybe do some light customizations to your own needs, uh, you know, compile those and put them up into your own gallery mm -hmm. and make them available to your in internal users. So uh, I'll put in a plug since I guess today's a plug day. Uh, there, there's a PM internally in the product group, uh, Veza, Veza Juvenin. I'm probably masking his last name. I'm sorry, Vesa. Um, go out and find his uh, webcast. He does it every week where they talk about new topics and new solutions that they've made available for our, our people to, to download from, what's the name of the site? I was Patterns and Practices. Patterns and Practices website. So but, Plus, you can go to dev.office.com, and there's links to Patterns and Practices content there. Exactly. So, so from an enterprise uh, tenant administration perspective, uh, is there any vetting of those uh, power apps and, and things that are in the gallery, uh, you know, stamp of approval, things like that? You or me? Yeah, okay, I'll take that. So, yes, for SharePoint apps, that, so obviously the in-product ones are automatically available. The ones that groups, for example, internally build, we vet because we just want to make sure that is this solid, are there any issues with this, are we going to mm -hmm. be concerned at all, is there any security implications? Uh, so we vet those SharePoint apps and then they'll go into our internal gallery. So there's a, every company's tenancy has a, an internal catalog for, for private apps you wanna build for yourself and share them within your own company. And of course, the public one. And so yes, we vet all the internal ones before we make them build. Okay. Okay, another one. Um, oh, this one's loaded. Uh, this one, uh, let's see. Do users still call help desk here at Microsoft and how do you resolve O365 issues? You know, I'll take that one. <laughs> I mean, yes, they still call help desk uh, with a traditional telephone if they choose. Um, it is a much broader kind of scenario now. I mean, we've got ways to, to contact our, our support staff through you know, things like Skype for Business, Teams, uh, we also have like online chat systems, Yammer, Yammer. Yeah. Uh, you know, the list actually is pretty exhaustive. We also have, um, we've, we've deployed service now internally, which actually does have a landing portal for people to order things like smart cards, uh, to, to submit say AAD application requests. I mean, even when it comes to support to O365 issues with 
you know, wanting a custom application or a custom solution, you know, we've got Front Desk, which is a process that uh, David helps support and, and drive. Uh, so yeah, we, we, those are kind of the different ways that we resolve O365 issues. Uh, I know we've become a lot more social lately, so you know, some of the issues even get proactively or I should say aggressively reactively resolved. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not, basically we, we, we may have a problem in O365 uh, that we are very aggressive at resolving simply because we're hearing murmurings and yammer. Uh, or, or experiencing it ourselves and uh, have that direct line with our support staff. So uh, we're hoping, ideally, the goal is is that people still do call help desk, but call help desk less, or, or rather they're calling us for issues that aren't, you know, SharePoint's broken or O365's broken. It's more, oh, I need a smart car. You know, more positive experiences in help desk are what we're aiming for. So, and one okay. of the things Sam, Sam does a lot is we have we have Yammer groups because we do a lot of community building in, internally in terms of making sure people peers of practice, people who can help each other. Yeah. So we have internally we have a, a SharePoint and Office 65 users group, which is kind of for that peer-to-peer -peer knowledge sharing, and we want to tell people here's what's going on for ourselves. And Sam, you you do a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's why I might make an announcement about uh, you know maybe a new set of web parts that we've released internally or. Uh, my most recent post is about the, the 20 we just released publicly uh, being available to our, our internal users. Um, uh, going back to the original question about, uh, you know, do we still take user help desk calls? It's funny, when I read the question on, on the screen, I, I, I interpreted it a little differently. Um, so absolutely everything that Darren said is absolutely correct. We still, you know, we have multiple paths for people to get to our, our, our help desk and, and uh, you know, take action in that way. Uh, I was wondering whether the intent of the question was about whether we somehow funnel users directly to Office 365 and, and bypass our support in, entirely. Uh, and the answer to that one, if that was the intent of the question, is no. You know, so you know, we find that by having our own Tier 2 team be the aggregator and the ones that submit the tickets to Office 365, they can usually help faster. Yeah. Because you know, you know, inevitably, since we're part of the test ring before things go public, uh, but not only for that reason, you know, we'll see you know, 10 or 20 of the same issue come up all at once. And so they can work with the product group once and then funnel that same answer out to all impacted and, users and save and, that time on yeah. that ticket submission and response process. So if that was the purpose of the question. And I, I think that, that speaks to the reliability of Office 365. Um, the reason or one of the primary reasons we do have our own support team is because I, I would say 90 to 95% of the issues that are escalated aren't necessarily around the stability of the platform or an issue that would be, say, Microsoft supported. If we're talking about Microsoft the provider, not us as the customer. 95% of our issues are largely user education, either um, some internal process, an internal ordering process, questions about potential content, you know, when you look at like our internal expensing systems. Uh, Configuration, they've said yeah. permissions wrong and why aren't things showing up in search? Yeah, things, things that, like the, that is. the customer would want to own and would be expected to kind of own those types of things, custom configurations. And as you said, you know, as we roll out more web parts, there there is content there that we support. So that that's the, when you, you know, phrasing it from the way Sam interpreted the question, uh, yeah, we definitely don't have a lot of people going directly to Office 365 for that reason, because uh, our Tier 2 team can resolve it so much faster, uh, and, and of course, you won't have that negative customer experience of contacting Microsoft only to kind of determine that it, it is something your administrators would have to have dealt with in the first place, so. 
And many times it's like community answers the questions also, right? Yeah. Like the Yammer, Yammer that David brought up or the community groups that we have are very effective in resolving your, some of your issues that are common across you know, various teams and various people. That's probably for me, I think it, it has been very helpful. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a, a, the reason is uh, our, our user base, our users out there are the non-phone users. They're the ones that go to social media a lot, and it's just yeah. the reality of the new workforce. I know. I don't like the telephone at all. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, another one. Um, this looks like a search one. What are the options for targeting content through search? Yeah, actually, this is an interesting question, right? Because uh, many times we internally also face the problem about uh, targeting information for a certain people in a, maybe a region or a role and whatnot. Um, and I think one of the cool ways is uh, that we have internally implemented is uh, by using the user profile tokens. Um, the profile information has you know, your role, your region, uh, and all that information. And the way we implement is to create result blocks that leverage the information from your profile and dynamically displays what content is, right? So two things here. One is, of course, the profile needs to have that kind of information. And the second is the content also needs to have that metadata. Data, and then we blend them together and build this result blocks that are very personalized and very uh, centric to that particular you know group of users. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll riff on that a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the as a real world example, uh, probably the, the the most visible way that we use audience targeting today is on our, on our internal corporate portal, MSW. Uh, you know, so a visitor going to the front page of our internal, this is sort of our corporate, corporate news portal for, for those who haven't heard the term before. Uh, and, you know, we will target content to users based on country. We'll base, do it based on campus. We'll do it based on building. Pretty soon we're going to base it on org. You know, and so that way the, the corporate news team can, can reach the people that they want to reach with the news that, that is relevant to them. So, you know, the, 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 the silly but true example is, you know, hey, there's going to be a blood mobile outside of Building 21 today, and they can target that news to show up only for people in the general vicinity of, of Building 21. And for those who are in Norway who don't care about the blood mobile uh, outside of Building 21, uh, they can show them a different, more relevant piece of content. So no, a Norwegian you know, that, blood mobile. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah, Norwegian a Norwegian blood mobile. Blood mobile. Yes. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I'll just plug there, the way we do that is through the new bulk import API. Uh, so uh, last year, David? Is yeah. when we, uh, I can't remember, but uh, we rolled out the new uh, bulk import API, which makes it a lot easier to uh, pump custom uh, user attributes up into the cloud. Uh, you know, so really, if you think about your profile store, it's comprised of three pieces. You know, the stuff that we suck in from Azure Active Directory, the stuff that the user supplies on their on their Dell page, their Dell profile page, but the third one is is this you know combination of authoritative data that we and IT own and push up into the profile store to, to make available. So uh, I guess my point there being that, you know, anyone in the audience could do the same and fill out that profile store with things that are relevant to, to their business. Yeah, and then you can use that information to target your content to, exactly. to people. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So uh, here's a couple of questions that came in that are very, very similar, and I'll put them together into one. Um, how long did it take for us to move to the cloud, and at what rate were we, be, were we able to move to the cloud? 
Sure question. And, you know, it, it's kind of funny as we think about this now in, in retrospect. Because we started it the move. It comes up every, every oh, I know. webinar. But yeah. we started the move, what, 2011 was when we started the, yeah. we, we said November 2011, we're going to go all in. We're going to get the cloud. We're going to do a bunch of work. Then we, we did a bunch of pilots and we did we started moving things. I mean, so for us, like how long it took, you know, it's not really a comparable amount. Because we, 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 we did this over a number of what, almost four years to get, I'd say, to 90, 99% really in the cloud. And in the beginning, it was through a cocktail straw. Right, exactly. And at the end, we had a pipe. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I think to, to, to your point, Jim, was you know, when, when we did it, we didn't have the wealth of options that exactly. are available to an enterprise right. today. So, right. uh, ExpressRoute didn't exist. ExpressRoute didn't exist. Uh, you know, the, the third-party tools didn't exist. You know, we just released a new free content migration tool uh, at, at Ignite, it was announced. Um, you know, so all these things that, that, that we had to invent are now available. So I think any, any, any real world customer would, would have a much faster, easier experience. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that when you, when you think about this, you're, you're planning the, you know, a, a big part of this is also segmenting your migration. Say, what am I going to start net new? Where am I going to say, go create new sites? So every, everyone wants to create a new experience, Go create it in the cloud. Stop creating it on prem. It was kind of the first thing. Open the door effectively. Right. Then say, okay, now that I open the door, what do we need to lift and shift effectively? We did that. Lots of rounds of migrations of that, and then getting into a more custom experience to say, you know what? I've got this MS Web, as Sam said, this, this custom portal, and I've got web parts on this portal, and I've got a bunch of custom solutions on this portal. How do I refactor the UI? The information architecture, migrate the content, and refactor solutions to move it. And that, of course, is a, the biggest, heaviest part of lifting from the complete refactoring perspective. But it's also the thing that can go near the end. And so when we think about migration, if I were to do it again now, if we were kind of on-prem, I kind of seg still segmented in those areas. But I wouldn't worry as much about the sites that don't have to go too quickly because, because of hybrid, because I've got the opportunity to say, I can still keep the experiences on-prem. We're not in a rush to retire the rest of our on-prem. We will. but now that we're down to this level, it's like, why rush? And, and, and I guess the last thing I'll drop in there is, is you know, I was talking to an external ex, uh, enterprise customer just last month, actually. They're, they're planning on moving 75 terabytes of content to the cloud uh, and, you know, working with our, um, you know, consulting folks. That's not a plug for them just mentioning that they're involved in the project. Uh, you know, right now they're they're seeing that as a, a 9 to 12 month project. So, you know, if, if the, the thrust of the question is to kind of get a gauge on how fast they can do it, uh, I do know one enterprise customer that's going to try to move about 75 terabytes in less than a year. So, you know, if you are organized and go in with a, a good plan, uh, you can move a lot of content really quickly. And Darren, we're planning migrations now, right? We're oh, the yeah. divisions yeah. that we've acquired that, you know, we're trying to move in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We, uh, I mean, I guess it's public news. We acquired LinkedIn and LinkedIn, <laughs> um, LinkedIn has a lot of data uh, previously in, in another competitive competitor environment, a couple different competitive environments. So we are in the process of migrating that data. Um, you know, some of the challenges there is, is that LinkedIn would prefer to have the process largely transparent um, or silent, as we call it. So, you know, no moving data and interrupting the usual workflow over there. So those are some of the challenges we're facing. Um, and and uh, there's about 13,000 employees there that we're going to be moving soon. Um, and then, of course, there'll be the multi-geo, where we're going to start dispersing the content for people that are in Asia and Europe, moving that eventually over to those respective geos. So we've got a fair bit of migration going on. But as Sam said, four or five years ago, this would have been a lot more difficult because we would have had a lot less tools. 
Um, now we even have the migration API, which you know, we didn't have back then. So you know, back in our day, you know, we, <laughs> we, had, we had the standard CSOM and we liked it. Um, <laughs> uh, but now we've got the migration API, which in some cases, depending on the tool, can be up to 30 times faster. So uh, it is allowing us to move a lot more data a lot quicker. Um, and because that API is a lot more geared towards uh, the types of challenges we faced in migration, uh, we're also seeing a lot less errors and incompatibilities and collisions and things like that. So one of the key points just to note is that when we started with what, 38 terabytes or content roughly Pretty on Pretty close to that. And, yeah. and we're now what, two, almost two petabytes of content in cloud? Mm, I think we just crossed two petabytes. Yeah, yeah. between OneDrive for Business and SharePoint. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the adoption of a cloud service has been far more than migration. I think it, when you look at it in hindsight, you say content came from out of a woodwork into these services because people, they just jumped in. It's like, well, now I can work anywhere I need to. I can, I can, I don't, we don't want the content in my machine anymore. I want to be able to fly it in that machine. Jim's machine breaks, who cares? All the content's in the cloud anyways. So, you know, that, I think that's, it's changed the dynamic. And so we've got this massive volume that we're now managing. So when I think about migration, I go, well, Yes, that was important, but it was really almost to start fresh on the new stuff that made the bigger impact to our, I guess, footprint that we have now. Well, yeah. as, I, as I look at the, the corporate landscape, I mean, I think about all the ways, you know, even I didn't realize how big it was. You know, that sounds arrogant. I mean, but I didn't realize at the time, you know, how big it was going to be because, you know, we retired massive file sharing. Mm -hmm. We retired, uh, you, know, you know, disks connected to servers under desks. Uh, we, you know, all this content that, that used to be, number one, uncrawled, Unmanaged, uh, you know, no life cycle, no e-discovery, uh, because we made easy for number one for people to have a, a, a place to store it, and number two that you know that let's not underestimate you know the the impact of anywhere access on any device. Uh, just uh, just take you know, a look the at growth. the typical laptop in 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 our enterprise. Mm -hmm. The C drive usage, the main drive is minuscule now yeah. as opposed to before when we had all of our documents, all of our stuff yeah. on yeah. the directories on our C drive. Now it's all in OneDrive for Business. And it's yeah. a good thing. No, yeah, well, and, and I, I would take it even a step, uh, uh, one more step. Uh, the, the reliability of the sync client yeah. is such that our users now believe in it. I don't know if anyone in, in, in the real world out there you know, had users that you know, had sync client trouble with the old uh, OneDrive for Business client, which was when it worked, it was great. Occasionally, it would it would trip. Um, you know, the new uh, robustness, the speed, performance, reliability of the new tool is such that uh, our users now uh, are really you know making bets on it. Yep. And in fact, there I know we announced it at, at Ignite, mm -hmm. uh, where you can, as an IT person, automatically redirect a user's uh, default folders to OneDrive for Business. So you know, pretty soon you'll be able to have that in place as well. Yeah. So. Uh, you're automatically redirecting those users to the cloud. Plus, now with OneDrive Business Sync client dealing with bigger, uh, not just OneDrive, but also the whole SharePoint stuff, I can have placeholders effectively on my machine for the documents I care about and watch the sites. I can sync the piece of site I care about and use and knows what to bring down, and yet the volume up in the cloud might be enormous, far bigger than my hard drive. And so I'm just bringing down the pieces that matter to me. And I think that's right. a, yeah, a big shift, too, why people are moving more off the machine. Yeah, yeah if I were to add one thing, in, in the, the discovery of the information discovery is much more richer with the cloud story. Because if you now know your content is in the cloud, which means it's discoverable through Outlook, through you know Bing for Business, through your Windows search box, through your SharePoint sites and everything, right? And it's such yeah. a um, amazing story that you don't have to know where to start. 
you can almost start anywhere and still find your content. Okay. Well, uh, thanks everybody. Uh, we're almost at the end of the hour. Uh, so before we go, I'd like to ask each of the experts a final key takeaway that they would like for the audience members to uh, leave with. Let's start with David. So one thing I think about is when I'm talking to customers internally about building their modern sites or their sites is when you think about solution ads, build them as modern from the get-go. Even if you're building on a classic site, site collection or publishing or classic features, if you're building uh, a new customizations, new solutions, plan the modernization up front, build them as SharePoint framework parts so that they can be moved to a modern experience whenever the time comes. All right, my takeaway uh, revolves mostly around some of the some of the new stuff that we're working with. Uh, Power Apps, Flow, uh, you know, Office Graph API is starting to get more and more robust uh, as, as days go by. Um, you know, automation has made things so much easier. Uh, I don't care what anybody says. Automation doesn't doesn't make you lazy. It makes you efficient. Um, so definitely start getting into Flow, Power Apps. Uh, you know, constantly review that Graph API because there's always new exciting things coming in there and and ways to automate. And with PowerShell, you know, we've got um, PowerShell modules now for things like retention, allowing us to automate some of our retention workflows that are coming out. Uh, we have PowerShell for things like SharePoint. Uh, Teams is also getting PowerShell soon. So really, if you haven't yet gotten on the PowerShell bandwagon, there's no better time. I mean, especially now that PowerShell is available for Mac, Windows, and Linux. So no matter what operating system you have out there, there's automation waiting. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, I think my, uh, you know, one key takeaway in the search space specifically is that I think search is just a piece of the puzzle, and the puzzle is not complete unless there's strong content publishing, content creation, uh, permissioning, and all of those things, right? Um, so as we, we need to have strong holes in all of these areas for us to have a great search experience, and if one of those pieces is broken, then your search experience lacks and you will have you know, people dissatisfied with the experience. All right. Sam, you're last. Uh, that's dangerous. Uh, so I would say I would encourage everyone out in the audience to, to go and, and start looking at uh, you know, what their plans will be for adopting the new site types as well as the new tools at our disposal. Uh, for example, uh, you can go out and, and there's a custom theme generator already available. You can start generating your own custom themes for your own enterprise to be used in branding your sites today, uh, to be able to brand your hub sites uh, uh, tomorrow. Uh, so this is available today. Um, uh, I'll just put a plug in for ignite.microsoft.com. Uh, lots of sessions on uh, everything we've talked about uh, today. Uh, you know, the new search stuff, the hub sites, the design templates, uh, everything. Um, so uh, I would encourage you to go look at ignite.microsoft.com. Thanks, Sam. And I want to take a moment to thank everybody here uh, for taking time out of their, uh, their day to uh, join us and uh, share their expertise. I'd also like to thank you, the audience, for uh, joining us today. I hope you found the uh, session valuable. So the on-demand version of this uh, session will be posted to Microsoft.com slash IT Showcase soon. Don't type this soon. Uh, you can find the IT uh, additional IT Showcase content like uh, business and technical case studies, productivity guides, videos, and uh, upcoming webinars uh, on the Microsoft.com slash IT Showcase site as well. So please join us for future webinars and uh, please bring your colleagues with you. Thank you very much.